G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. Well, it is our special event debrief, our expert panel unpacking the good, the bad and the ugly of last night's federal budget announced by the Treasurer, Joss Frydenberg. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316. First of all, let me welcome along Alex Cook, the founder of Wealth With Purpose. Hello, Alex. Welcome along. Thanks, Neil. Great to be with you again. And Dr. Rod St. Hill, also joining us in the studio, Christian economist. Rod, a special welcome to you. Good morning, Neil. It's good to be with you. Let's start with some general overviews, uh, overall impressions. Alex Cook, let me start with you. What was your overall impression of the Treasurer's presentation last night? (laughs) Um, Look, um, it's been, I think, fascinating insight into a, a big sort of ideological shift that we've seen now uh, in the Liberal Party and the government. This is a party that historically would have said it was fairly conservative in spending uh, and uh, very against debt. Uh, And really, they've flipped that on its head over the last two years with the COVID crisis. And now they're they're really passionate believers, it would appear, in government intervention in all aspects of the economy. Uh, So that's what I think is the big, if you like, ideological ideological and economic shift that's taken place and of course the outcome of that is now they've said there's going to be deficits I think for the next decade in fact I think we've had one surplus in the last 13 years since the global financial crisis so essentially in the next 23 years in total back to from the GFC you'll have had one surplus I think in that whole time so it's a big ideological shift um, and I think that's a big change in terms of the actual detail itself most of a lot of it what I see particularly particularly if I'm coming at it from a financial planner's perspective, um, a large portion of it was really just minor tweaking. So we see lots of changes to super, some minor changes to taxes, but overall, um, you know, not too consequential there. It's more the stimulus and the debt that they're trying to pump into the economy that I think is the the big long-term ideological change that we've seen. Dr. Rodson Hill, let's stay with this idea that there is a changing ideology in what we've all considered to be the conservative side of politics, the Liberal Party. Is this problematic, do you think? It could be. Um, What I'm looking forward to is an election, a win, and then some fiscal uh, pulling back, as, as we used to have. You know, we used to have that election cycle in budgets where the first budget after an election was a pretty tough one uh, we know that the Abbott um, the first Abbott uh, budget came a bit of a cropper because it was a very austere budget and there was a lot of opposition to that but um, as we look at the budget papers before us the size of government is increasing and that's a major issue as far as I'm concerned they certainly seem to have walked away from their promise to keep the size of government down to about 24 percent of our total income Uh, At best, in these forward estimates, it'll be just over 26%. That 2% makes a big difference. And in a nutshell, the larger is government, the less freedom we have. And I think that's an important issue 
to be discussed. So beyond the next election, you would see that if Labor wins, uh, they would continue the big spending and that debt would be way, way, way out of control. And it may be way, way out of control now, but you think that the Liberal side of politics is more likely to be a little more austere on the other side of an election. Well, history certainly shows that, although I agree with Alex that this particular government has really does seem to have shifted politically. But on the other hand, there still is a lot in this budget for business, particularly small business, with a reduction in their income tax down to 25%. I think that's a good thing. A strong focus in the training area, jobs training area, which I think is also important. A big increase in expenditure on the NDIS, that was inevitable. That's a legacy of a Labor government. And uh, the government, I think, had no other option but to say, yes, we're going to fully fund it. I have some ideas in terms of how that might happen a little bit down the track. Um, But I also think that a lot of the spending in this particular budget has quite a compassionate basis. I think the increase in allocation for mental health is well and truly due. And um, if you have a look at the data, between 12 and 18 months after any major shift economically or socially, there's a big increase in mental health issues. And I think that will inevitably follow the COVID crisis. And I would expect to see this particularly in a state like Victoria, where there were very long and severe shutdowns. So that's a good thing. And I think that's looking forward to the future. So in terms, if you like, the micro areas of the budget, I'm fairly comfortable with it. But I'd be looking in the next year or two for a recommitment of the government to keep the size of government down. It's just very, very large. Okay, and uh, that brings us back to this ideological shift here uh, because you appreciate that a conservative side of government might want to pare back the size of government, but it is continuing to increase in size. Uh, Alex Cook, recovery is the key theme, and I've heard the Treasurer address these sorts of questions. Uh, You know, what about the, the size of all of this? And, of course, he says recovery is the key theme. In fact, I think he went on to say that, uh, you know, ideological positions get thrown out the window when there is a crisis of this magnitude. Uh, So recovery, the key theme. Do you think this extension of recovery that's happened in last night's budget is is called for or should they not have gone so far? Uh, Look, I mean, I'm more on the conservative side of spending, so I'd probably say they've gone too far. But I think what it raises from a, a Christian perspective is the moral challenge that the government had to face. And they had a choice. The choice was, do we stimulate so much that we um, maintain jobs? And you have to say that over the last 12 months, they've done a remarkable job at keeping people in work. Now, they've spent an enormous amount of money in order to do that, but it has certainly worked. Um, But the, the moral challenge, I think, was... Um, How much do you protect people living uh, today uh, and people affected today versus future generations of Australians that are going to have to um, pay this all back? And Rod made a really good point about the growing size of the government. And my concern with that is, yes, we're focused on recovery and really pumping things up, but ultimately it becomes very hard to take back what you've given out. And I think that creates a sort of almost a permanent shift in the culture that there's this expectation that the government will always be there for me. And I think that's taking us down a a long-term and dangerous path. And I think, as I say, the moral challenge, though, is that 
how much do you pressure do you put on future generations of Australian and how much pressure do you put on taking away some of their prosperity because ultimately these debts have to be repaid and I think the I think it was the Institute of Public Affairs came out a couple of months ago and said that it will take till 2080 to repay the debt now I personally don't think um, it will be repaid because it, it presumes that you're going to have good governance for the next 50 years who are going to intentionally try and repay it. Um, and you know, so I think there are some really big moral challenges here that have been raised. And I think the Liberal Party, um, as Rod said, if they get re-elected, maybe they then can then come in and start tightening their belt again. That would be good. Um, but I think it becomes very difficult to take back what you've handed out. I think once people get something, to then take it away becomes very hard. And so that's the, I think, <laughs> the big moral dilemma that's caused, that's come out of this budget. Dr. Rodson Hill, I know you love to talk about uh, issues like this and especially get your head around moral dilemmas. And as a Christian economist in this sort of field, uh, this moral challenge for the future, this does put that. Uh, that responsibility on our children and on our grandchildren, and even as Alex says, uh, maybe <laughs> putting things back to uh, uh, you know, the next uh, 50 years. Uh, what are your thoughts here for that moral challenge? Well, as Alex says, we, we don't know when the budget will next be balanced or indeed be in surplus. We are where we are today because of very high prices for iron ore. So it's actually the price of iron ore which has enabled the government to spend as much as it has, in actual fact. Um, in terms of repaying the debt, look, it's not just future generations, but we too, sometime in the future, those of us who are still living 10, 20, 30 years from now, will be repaying it. And we repay it either through higher taxes, that is taxes that are higher than they otherwise would be, or through inflation. Mm -hmm. It's one or the other. And yeah. uh, so you do have to pay the piper. There's no magic pudding. Now, this issue of inflation, I haven't heard commentators talking about this, and I haven't heard every commentator, so maybe there are some who are discussing this issue. But it seems to be, if you then, uh, and Alex Cook, I'll get your thoughts here, if we talk about Australia in the context of a global uh, insight as to what's happening economically right now when we can identify the huge stimulus that's been introduced into, say, the United States. Uh, trillions of dollars of stimulus there. The idea that so much money awash in the world's economies is going to increase the rate of inflation and uh, it could well be a way to address the whole issue of debt and deficit. Your thoughts here, Alex Cook? Well, look, I think certainly it's a path that all Western governments seem to be following. Uh, and I think, that, as you say, they're hoping that they can use inflation to, to get there out of it. But I, I'm not uh, convinced that this is going to work. I think it's just going to really damage the long-term prosperity of those in um, in the Western world. What we're witnessing globally is a massive rise in asset prices. So you're seeing that flow through to, whether it's in the share market or in the housing market. And the problem with that is that tends to benefit people who are already affluent and already have assets. Those who don't, 
uh, it's becoming more unequal because of a lot of these policies that governments are doing. And that concerns me because you're going to have a lot more civil unrest in Western culture than you've had historically because the policies they're pursuing are leading to greater inequality. Uh, that's especially felt in the US because you can see it there um, much more dramatically. I mean, the billionaires have benefited from COVID far more than anyone else and wages growth there is is been nothing for 20, 30 years. But that's a problem here as well in Australia where wages growth is pretty much non-existent. Yet uh, take rent in Australia. Rents, the rental figures came out the other day and rents in the last six months have gone up 5%. But you show me any, any Australians where their wages have gone up 5% and you won't find many. And so this inflation, as Rod said, is going to be a big problem um, and it's going to cause, I think, potentially more inequality and more social unrest. So it's wow. going to be a challenge. I think we're touching here on something which to me sounds incredibly important because on a program like this, Rodson Hill, when we want to bring a Christian dimension to the sorts of things that are being talked about in relation to the, tre- the Treasurer's budget, the challenges for the poor in the generations to come because down the track... Uh, as we might appreciate, you polarise the rich and the poor. In other words, and people talk about the rich getting richer, the poor staying uh, captivated in poverty. Uh, And that, of course, leads to uh, potential unrest and even uprisings. I mean, uh, the potential for things to go bad when you uh, concretise this difference, this is very challenging, isn't it? Yes, look, it could be. And, And the issue is really in the area of wealth rather than income because... Our income tax and wealth systems are great levellers in terms of the overall distribution of income. But as Alex says, it's the distribution of wealth that becomes a problem. And believe it or not, when you look at the world distribution of wealth, there are some 13 million people in America who are right at the bottom of the world distribution in wealth. And I noticed looking at some um, international forecasts just the other day, that as a result of COVID, there'll be millions of US citizens who fall into some of the most serious poverty gaps, people earning less than 10 US dollars per day. Now, before COVID, effectively, nobody in the United States was in that category, but post-COVID, they will be. I think the way to deal with that, we must address the issue of wealth taxes seriously. Now, I know people get all worried about death taxes and things like that, but currently in Australia, over 62% of tax is what you might call tax on production. It's individual income tax and it's company tax. That tax is effectively tax on production. It's tax which affects the income-producing incentive in our nation. What we need to do, I think, is to shift some of that tax burden onto wealth, that is assets, especially assets that are not actually being used to generate income. So things like land banks, which are not being used for any useful purpose, those are things that we need to start looking at. And uh, in fact, anybody who's studied first-year economics will know that the least distortionary taxes are taxes on assets that are themselves not being used to produce um, useful goods and services. Well, you can hear this conversation is going down a track here, bringing Christian commentary to last night's federal budget. 
Two special guests with us at the start of this special presentation as we debrief on last night's federal budget. And there are comments you're hearing here on 2020 that you will not necessarily hear anywhere else. Christian commentary on last night's federal budget. Alex Cook is our guest, founder of Wealth with Purpose, and Dr. Rod St. Hill, Christian economist, our two guests with us uh, for the start of this debrief conversation. Let me come to you, Alex, just to touch on uh, something that we've begun to talk about here and the burden on generations to come for the future. I notice, and listeners will be aware, the church didn't get a mention anywhere in last night's budget, and uh, we might not expect that is going to be the case. But the church plays a vital role in the way that we care for people in the community. What are your thoughts for where we're headed and even rising opportunities for church to be involved in the lives of people, particularly at the poorer end here? Yeah, look, I've long believed that one of the issues in our culture is that the government has taken on part of the role of the church. When we, when we read through the Bible, um, there's a massive emphasis on us as believers helping those in need. You know, there are literally hundreds of verses that imply that Christians need to be helping the poor in our society. And I think one of the problems that's really occurred over the last 100 years is that we've had this growing welfare system. Now, you can debate the merits of it, the pros and cons of it, but the one thing it's done, I think, is it's divorced Christians from the need to really help the poor. Now, most Christians acknowledge it. They've heard it preached that they need to help the poor. But I would argue that many Christians don't even know anyone who's actually poor in our in our communities anymore because a lot of that's been outsourced to the government, whether it's through many of the schemes that we've talked about, whether it's through welfare payments and so forth. Um, and I think one of my concerns is just with, you know, Rod made the point of growing government and just it's just this endless growing effect. Um, I question the sustainability of the government to be able to help everybody. And I think at some point there could be a reckoning. And I think that reckoning will happen one day when interest rates do finally rise and things just become very, very unsustainable at that point. And when that happens, I think there is just this fabulous opportunity for the church to rise up and to be able to help those in need in their local community. And so I would encourage sort of any pastor listening or, or any individual who's involved in the leadership in their church to say, what are we doing in our local area that really meets the needs of those who are down and out, those who are struggling, whether they're homeless, uh, whether they're a single parent and struggling, um, or people who are really just struggling to make ends meet. I think that is the ultimately the responsibility of us as the church much more so than the responsibility of the government. And I think we've allowed that over the last, you know, 50, 100 years, there to be too much emphasis on the government doing something. So whenever there's a problem, like the pandemic, we say, government, what are you going to do? Well, my message would be, well, actually, church, what are you going to do? And I think that's where we need to see a big shift in the church. And I think it's a fabulous opportunity um, to be the arms and legs of Christ um, and uh, really help people in need. And of course, share the gospel with them as we're doing it. That's the massive opportunity um, that I think lays before us um, as the unsustainability of you know big government um, continues. Uh, Dr. Rodson Hill, this idea of outsourcing the care of the poor 
to the government. And uh, sometimes that's the thing that's created this confusion that some people have that somehow or other Christianity is more aligned with socialism than it is with capitalism. And, of course, uh, the capitalist idea has the Christian foundation of creating wealth to care for the poor. You put government in the middle there and it outsources the responsibility of the church. Alex has got a great point, hasn't he? Oh, absolutely. And, and you can see that through, through the history of the last hundred years or so, where the church has indeed outsourced things like health, assistance to the poor, education, all of those things once were the province of the church, but gradually over time the church let them go. And I think um, as you look through through history, in part it was because the church couldn't provide enough resources. And so in good faith, they partnered initially with government and then eventually handed everything over. So they handed over schools, they handed over hospitals and so on. But what we've actually lost, of course, is the whole Christian ethos that underpinned that activity within the community. Now, my, my interest in business, of course, arises in part because I do believe that his business as the wealth creation generator in our society has a major role to play in the whole area of social welfare, primarily through providing the dignity of work for people. Mm. And uh, if you have a look at, if you like, the biblical principles of business, one of those was to care for the poor. And uh, I, I think that's something that we need to build back into our whole thinking about the role of business in our society. So we might be thinking, this is what the church used to do. And now as we look at that uh, mediator, the government, taking up this responsibility and, uh, you know, to reflect on those words, the economic engine roaring back to life. Uh, there is this idea that actually has the Christian foundation to it, Alex Cook, uh, that when the engine roars back to life, then you can more adequately care for the poor. But having outsourced this responsibility to the government, in some ways we find ourselves as the church uh, looking a little bit more like a spectator on the sidelines. And somehow or other you've got to be able to say, well, how do we get back in the game? Uh, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, well, I think what we've done is we've created what I would call a relationship breakdown. So the when, when we think about the government providing welfare payments to people, it's essentially a financial transaction that comes with very little commitment and no relationship to the giver. And this is where I think the church can take this responsibility back, where we provide care to people, um, we provide, um, you know, meeting their, their particular needs. But the, the opportunity in that is it comes with a relationship um, because, you know, you're actually relating with people rather than just giving them a handout per se. Um, and therefore, you're also trying to help break the dependency. I mean, if you look in some countries, and uh, some listeners may know, I lived in Argentina for five years, and that's very socialist and very welfare orientated. And it's just created this massive dependency culture, which becomes very hard to break. And you end up with what I call generational poverty. Uh, and that's very, very hard to break when you have that. And I think this is the path that Western culture is, you know, been drifting down. Whereas if we can break that and actually make it a relational thing where, um, you know, we are the ones um, providing care and that, but it comes with a responsibility from the recipient and it comes with a relationship. Therefore, we're going to help break down the dependency, help people to become, you know, independent again, um, rather than to being dependent on the government. And I think that's a big opportunity. And I think Rod also hit it on the head um, when he talked about kingdom business and business providing jobs, because that's what gives people dignity. 
Um, and uh, in fact, AMP, the, the massive organization, AMP was started by three people and one was a, a pastor. And his view was that um, helping people with their finances brought dignity. And that's a huge thing, I think, for Christians, is we want to restore dignity in people's lives. Because when people feel poor and down and out, they lose their sense of dignity. And so that's a huge opportunity that we have. And I think we do that ultimately through taking part of the, the job back off government and being um, helping people to, um, you know, to become independent again and help rebuild them rather than just allowing them to be endlessly on the, on the government support. Rodson Hill, I did an interview recently and a business leader in the UK sending out a message around the world saying, Christian business, pick up your socks, get out there and do entrepreneurial pursuits that create business, that create employment. This is something here, I guess, which we can take from the budget, the government even making that easier for Christian business to thrive because this idea of thriving in Christian business helps to set some levels of moral standards in business operation as well. Any thoughts here for Christian business taking advantage of but having a context of your faith and this idea of maybe godly entrepreneurialism into the future? Oh, absolutely. I think business has an enormous role to play. And as a matter of fact, I think God is beginning to use business in a way he's never used it before as many people in business come alive to what can happen through business. You see, business, I believe, was actually God's idea in the first place. It was established by God as a wealth creator. The genius of business is that it brings together a whole bunch of undifferentiated resources and actually transforms them into something that can contribute positively to human flourishing. I mean, that is why we buy stuff. And uh, if business people can understand that it actually goes further than that, that a business actually provides a kind of community for the people who are employed. And uh, most people don't experience much in the way of community at all anymore because we have uh, automatic garage doors and so on. We just drive in and out of our garage and we never see our neighbours. So there's hardly any neighbourhood communities anymore. And uh, there's lots of family issues, family breakdowns, separations and so on and so forth. So for a lot of people, the closest they ever come to experience community is in their employment. So that's another arm, I think, of business. Uh, Alex Cook, we're running short of time with you. We're going to lose you shortly. Uh, any priorities that you wanted to raise with our listeners today uh, to bring to the fore those important elements of last night's budget? Uh, anything more that's outstanding for you? Oh, I'm not sure. Uh, look, as I say, most of the things in the budget I thought were just most of the things were a little just tweaking things like changes to superannuation and things like that. But I'm assuming Gavin's probably going to cover a lot of that in the next segment. But the one thing I wanted to pick up, though, just on what Rod was saying, and I think about God using business, is I really think um, the there's this massive opportunity um, for us to reclaim business as a social good. If you think about um, society now, business is often demonised. And I think people often have a negative view of business, you know, that it's greedy and so forth. But it's actually, it can be the opposite and it can lead to enormous human flourishing. Um, and I think there's a real opportunity here 
um, to change culture through um, employing people and through um, using business in really positive ways. So I think um, it's the, the future can be very exciting if we, uh, we step up to the plate and, uh, and do so. Rodson Hill, if we identify that culture is changing and uh, when we started talking through these segments about ideological differences and change that seems to have happened here on the conservative side of politics, becoming a little more socialist in the way that they're dealing with these economies here, uh, give us your insights here. This idea that culture changing creates opportunity. Uh, for Christians in business, for Christians who are listening in general, right across uh, the nation today, culture change creates opportunity, doesn't it? Yes, it will. And I think that the more, as it were, socialist we go, the more need there will be for people to belong genuinely to a community because what we actually see is this kind of um, politics of identity where we're identified as belonging to a group. We're not identified as individuals and God created us as individuals. I actually think it would be good if uh, many of us, particularly us pastors, went out into the bush and just observed at what the church and what small businesses are doing in the context of those communities. Because out there, the government is a long way away. And, and one of the wonderful things about the local church is that it is excellent at building community. And when the church partners with local businesses, they can achieve mighty things. And I think it would be great if um, maybe some pastors from uh, rural areas can phone in during our budget discussion and talk about what it is that that they're doing because they actually provide a lot of social welfare services, they provide cultural services. We don't often see that in the major metropolitan areas because there are government offices everywhere. You can walk down the street to go to, to Centrelink. You can't really do that when you're out in the bush. And sometimes I think we underestimate the joint contribution made by church and by business already in so many of our communities. Uh, It's easy, isn't it, to think that our care for those who are down and out, doing it tough, the poor, is only economic. As you touch on such an incredible dimension there, Rodson Hill, there is a relational and a, uh, a spiritual level that can't be created anywhere else other than this motivation that comes from the heart of the Christian believer. A thought or two uh, quickly on that topic, Alex Cook? Yeah, look, um, as you, I think it'd be really fascinating to see some of these models that are working out in rural communities and bringing them into the city. You know, I was touched by what Rob was saying before about in our in our cities now, your people drive into their garage and they can, and you know, close the garage door and they're completely disconnected from their neighbours. I think that is so true, and it's part of, I guess, of the sickness of the Western world, if you like. And more and more people are alone than ever before, and we have this opportunity to establish. Uh, true community and I think that's going to happen in the church it needs to be the church that rises up to do that and needs to be the arms and legs in its local community so if we can find great models that's worked out in rural Australia and and indeed other parts of the world too and bring that into our cities I think um, we can make a massive difference Uh, and also it'll it'll give people a sense of what Christianity is really about and what it brings to our culture. I think in our culture now we have this, there is increasingly this view that Christians are more painful than they are helpful, which is, of course, 
un completely untrue, but we have an opportunity by establishing community to actually change that perception and make a huge difference at the same time and uh, getting business to step up to the plate as well. It's Mandisa. Press on. You're on Vision Christian Radio. It's Neil Johnson with you on this special edition of 2020 Today, a debrief from a Christian point of view uh, on last night's federal budget. And if you've been listening in so far, you'll know that there are some things we've been talking about today with our expert financial and economic panel that are really, really important and that you'll probably not hear anywhere else. I do want to invite you to join into our conversation. You might have a question. You might have a comment. You might be that rural pastor who would like to make a thought or two, as Rod St. Hill reflected just a few minutes ago. one 800 316 to join in our conversation. And you can respond to the 2020 Facebook question today at facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Two guests, Dr. Rod St. Hill, Christian economist, is continuing with us on our expert panel and joined now by Gavin Martin, the founder of Cornerstone Wealth, based in Melbourne, where Gavin is senior financial advisor. His business model is founded on the idea that a person's true worth is not measured by financial net worth, rather than the rather that the individual is of inestimable value. Gavin Martin, a special welcome along to 2020. G'day Neil, great to be with you and great discussion so far. I know you've been listening in to the discussion so far and as I talk about your idea that, uh, you know, life is not all about the money, the net worth, but the individual is in of uh, inestimable value, I wonder if you've got a thought or two in a big picture idea as you have looked at last night's federal budget, uh, whether or not uh, some of the things we've been talking about are in line with your thinking. Yeah, as I looked at the budget and heard some of the new spending uh, announcements, I um, in, in past years I've struggled to sometimes link um, uh, the initiatives with the Christian worldview and how how you can assess it. But as I was listening to it last night, um, there was announcements on aged care, uh, disability support, mental health, single parents getting into housing domestic violence, and even some of the superannuation changes were focused at, the, at the, um, those with low incomes. And I couldn't help but relate those to the, the principle or biblical principle that we should be looking after the poor, the homeless, widows, orphans. And so I really did feel like they were throwing the kitchen sink at some of these initiatives, um, which do line up with Christian principles and Christian values. And I know you just talked about the fact that... Um, it, we're, we're moving all those um, services to government rather than the church uh, doing it. But if you're assessing the government and what it can do, it's, it seems to be throwing the kitchen sink at uh, some of those um, things with the core to Christian values. Uh, Rod St. Hill, based on this idea, uh, throwing the kitchen sink at all of these areas where the poor are beneficiaries in this makes us feel better about the way government is proceeding with the distribution of wealth here, except the fact that it's all borrowed money. Now, give us your insight here. Uh, this idea, because, you know, as Christians, we say we want to see the poor supported. But is there a sense in which you have to rein in the responsibility of borrowing the money to do that? Oh, well, look, it's, it's not all borrowed, of course. Um, the deficit's relatively small compared to deficits in many, many other 
other countries and, and even historically it's not a huge deficit. The deficit problem, of course, is that we're going to have it forever, it would, it would seem. Um, so it's a bit of a myth that we're, we're actually paying for these initiatives by borrowed money. Some of it is, there's no doubt about that. Largely it's paid for through, through taxes, uh, particularly taxes on individuals and taxes on, on companies. So what's happening is that there's a massive redistribution going on from those who pay tax, those companies and those individuals who pay tax, to those who for many, many reasons are either not able to pay tax or because of the way the system works, they're not required to pay tax. I'm not, like Gavin, I'm not critical of most of these initiatives. My major concern is that some of these expenditures are very, very large and we really don't have many pointers in the budget at all in terms of how we're going to make sure that as much of every dollar allocated as possible actually gets to the people who need it. It concerns me greatly, for example, with the NDIS and it concerns me greatly also with the um, aged care initiatives, both in the home and uh, in nursing homes. They're extremely large amounts of expenditure. We know there'll be bureaucracies created to administer it, and there'll be a whole bunch of private sector and charitable organisations that put their hands up to become involved. My concern is that we don't use too many of those resources if you like, in all of the infrastructure around it, but we get it to the people who need it. And I really do urge governments to work very, very hard at improving the efficiency with which this massive redistribution takes place. Okay, well, we've got an ageing population in Australia. Uh, This bubble has been coming for a long time. Uh, There is a sense here in which you could say that COVID-19 has given an excuse uh, for a conservative or what was conservative government uh, to actually, under the cover of COVID-19, bring in this borrowing that makes it look good, that there is support for, uh, say, NDIS and uh, aged care into the future. So uh, there's an interesting element there which uh, we might be able to unpack as we go. But I do want to get into some of the uh, the minutiae of the budget and we're not too long out from news. And Gavin Martin, you've been looking at the effects on families. You've been looking at the effects on business in your role as a senior financial advisor. Uh, what are people likely to be feeling? What will you be telling your clients about last night's budget? Well, there's a whole heap of flexibility on the superannuation side of things. Uh, so no negative changes there. It's all about, I guess, maybe it's going into the political cycle of an election in the next 12 months. So there's no negative side uh, um, for individuals on superannuation. A bit of flexibility. Taxation, they've extended the tax relief that they announced during the COVID period, uh, keeping the middle and lower income tax offset. Um, that's up to about $1,000 of tax benefit. So it's supposed to increase, as in taxes are supposed to increase next financial year, but they're going to keep the, that, that um, offset in to keep taxes at the current rate. And then also businesses uh, keep, keeping that, um, the, the instant asset write-off. And also uh, related to that is that you can also uh, use previous year's profits to offset losses and the combination of those two things can sometimes be of benefit to businesses. 
Well, when we talk about that low and middle income tax offset, uh, this is something that puts money in the pocket of basically every worker. Uh, and uh, to the tune of $1,000 or $2,000 plus for couples, uh, that certainly is something that keeps people uh, in the ideal spending and therefore contributing to the economy. Is that the way you'd see that, Gavin? Yeah, definitely. And then on the political side of things, if they didn't extend it into the new financial year, then it would have been an easy um, uh, talking point for the opposition uh, to say that we're actually increasing taxes. uh, and, And so they've eliminated that political issue as well. When we talk about this, just a minute or so out from the news, uh, your thoughts here, and we might preempt the idea that we want to talk about tax perhaps uh, after the news, but uh, taxation right now, and uh, try to keep you contained here, Rodson Hill, uh, taxation is a big issue, and uh, the government last night made it sound like it was all very easy and we're all getting lots of money and wondering whether that might be a smoke and mirrors type of idea. Look, I don't know whether it's smoke and mirrors, but I do know for sure and certain that we need some pretty significant reforms in our whole tax system. There's something like 150 different taxes in Australia. We really need to simplify that. And as I mentioned a little earlier, I think we need to shift some of the burden away from, if you like, production to to consumption. So I think there's a strong case, for example, for an increase in the GST. And I'm sure a government's not going to do that when they're staring down the barrel of an election. Ha <laughs> yes. Uh, in fact, uh, this idea that last night's federal budget sounded very much like an election budget. Gavin Martin, let me come to some of the rubber-hits-the-road type of issues from last night's budget. Let's talk through issues around women and single parents, and primarily those single parents, uh, I think, are women. But uh, what were your thoughts for the government's announcements around women in last night's budget? I'm not sure that I've uh, seen it before, but this year they actually had a whole budget document and statement around uh, women and women matters. So I guess out of the uh, issues that were happening happening in Parliament and the pressure that the Prime Minister was uh, under at times throughout the year, uh, they've really uh, tried to focus on it and uh, announced initiatives from uh, you know, violence against women and children uh, through to addressing... Um, uh, uh, the you know um, superannuation um, balance differences. The, the highest level of poverty is in single uh, women um, in their sixties. Uh, um, so yeah, they've really had a focus on uh, women's issues. And some of the initiatives like superannuation, there is um, you used to have to earn more than four hundred and fifty dollars a month before the employer needed to pay superannuation guarantee. That's the 9.5% your employer pays on your, your behalf. They're eliminating that um, rule so that now that low-income earners earning less than 450 still need to get superannuation guarantee. So even that's not a specifically a women issue, it can help women who are working part-time and not earning at the same level as others. Um, I guess the other point is uh, childcare. Um, there's uh, significant announcements with funding of childcare. One of my concerns there is it doesn't allow choice. So if somebody wanted to actually stay home and look after their children and, and nurture them in those key young years, um, and there's not the same level of funding for those people that would want to stay home and uh, look after their children. Rodson Hill, as Gavin Martin says, uh, the issues and controversies earlier in the year around Brittany Higgins and uh, issues, you know, with the scandals in Parliament House, 
and the government then trying to win back uh, the female side of voting here. And as Gavin says, uh, there really, you know, in memory, there hasn't been a special element in the budget that just deals with women. Is the government having a major reaction here because they recognise that women voters were potentially turning against the Prime Minister? Any thoughts here, just on a big picture here, when it comes to the government and their focus on women in this budget? Well, it's a possibility, but I really don't claim to be an expert in, uh, in politics. I don't think they've really done all that much which you could specifically say was oriented towards women. Uh, yes, the domestic violence initiatives are worthwhile. Uh, Childcare, of course, does affect uh, women, but it really affects households. So we're not just talking about women on their own. Um, I, I can understand why they have wanted to pull out of the budget um, amounts of, of uh, allocations that have been set aside that will specifically impact upon women. And uh, I certainly don't have any objections to that. I think it's something which is valuable. But I would hate us to descend into a state where the budget becomes a battle over how much are men winners, winners and how much are women winners. Um, I do take Gavin's point about the, the childcare where we seem to be pumping more and more public funding into childcare, making it easier and easier if we were to enter the workforce. But as we do that, if we don't do something to make it easier for women to stay at home, if they want to make that choice, then I, I think that's a bad thing. Uh, I do believe that the family is the best place in which to raise a child, particularly in those earlier years. For decades and decades, people have been arguing that we should allow income splitting among couples, which effectively reduces the rate of income tax on the family or the household unit. Uh, there's less reason to do that now than there was because our tax system isn't as progressive as it used to be. But, but I, I think a, a stay-at-home mum-friendly policy would be to, um, to introduce income splitting, even though it wouldn't confer the same benefit now that it might have a decade ago. Gavin Martin, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts here, because I didn't pick up from the Treasurer's presentation of the budget uh, that that was in any way favouring mothers and having choice. Uh, it really was more about getting mothers back into the workforce. Uh, there was very little thought around how that affects the values as they're passed on through the family. What are your thoughts around that idea? Yeah, it's not specifically, a, 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 as Rod uh, mentioned, it's not specifically uh, focused on women uh, because childcare helps both parties. But I, linking with what Rod was just saying about um, being able to income split between spouses, they've actually uh, eliminated a lot of the um, uh, tax um, uh, tax rebates that related to that. So you used to get a spouse rebate if your spouse was not working and you were working then you would get a, an extra $2,000 spouse rebate. They've eliminated most of those um, rules that work between uh, splitting income between spouses. The only one that really still exists is what we call a spouse contribution or eligible spouse contribution where if your spouse earns less than $37,000 you can put 3000 into uh, the lower income earning spouses super and get a $540 rebate. It's the only, it's the only uh, type of uh, income splitting or uh, balancing 
incomes between spouses that really still exists. Um, but uh, yeah, it would be uh, good to have those types of policies. But as you say, with um, or as Rod mentioned, with um, the tax um, being less progressive, as in it's a closer to a, a flat 30% tax rate across the board and, and we'll move towards that again in 2023-24 financial year. Um, it's becoming less important. Gavin, let's move on to the issue of housing because uh, one of the things I've heard in discussions is this idea that single parents being given this opportunity to uh, have uh, this government uptake of the remainder of not just the the 2% which uh, would be required but uh, the government uh, picking up the rest of a deposit here the idea that the single parent will benefit, but what about single-income families and how they may be disadvantaged here? Any thoughts around the housing initiatives in last night's budget? Yeah, there are a couple of housing-based initiatives, and I guess with the property market taking off with low interest rates, um, uh, I guess it, they need to be seen to be addressing the, the concern. The two areas, the one that you mentioned, the single parents um, uh, being able to take a 2% deposit loan and uh, being guaranteed by the government, they need to have serviceability. But yet you're actually you're, you're very correct. If it's a, it's a couple but there's only one spouse working, it's uh, potentially very similar to the uh, single parent. And, yeah, have we addressed that? There are other actual... Um, 5% deposit loans and there were 10,000 of them where the government would guarantee them um, and I think they have extended that scheme so that potentially could apply to the couples um, but I guess they're also focusing on single parents are potentially doing it tough. The other area with first um, uh, with uh, property and getting into the housing market is the first home savers super scheme that's where you can put up to fifteen thousand dollars a year into your superannuation fund of additional contributions and then use um withdraw it again when you purchase your first home they're increasing the amount that you can withdraw to put towards your first home from thirty thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars one of the concerns here and is that these types of initiatives often just end up meaning that that pushes the prices of property up further and you end up just paying the extra amount later on with the the extra funds that are available like the first home um, first home buyers grants etc just generally pushes prices up Uh, but I guess they've got to be seen to be addressing the housing affordability issue. We were talking about inflation in the first part of our commentary today. The idea that there's been huge increases in real estate. Uh, The idea that even, and I'll come to you on this, Rod St Hill, the idea that even the cost of a used car has gone up, uh, some are saying, uh, 30%. We're seeing the cost of living and the cost of asset purchases rising. Is that an early indicator that inflation is on its way into an accelerated rating rate? It's very, very hard to know. I, I think there's a significant risk that inflation will break out worldwide. I'm, I'm actually very concerned about what's happening in the United States. The, the United States government is spending massively, and I think that might have spillovers internationally. Um, you know, and, and governments around the world have been funding a lot of their spending, at least temporarily, by monetary means. Now, they're not literally printing money. They're not printing cash, but they are effectively printing money. 
And uh, we know that the formula for inflation really is too much money chasing too few goods. And uh, if we're not able to lift production significantly, and the budget assumes that we will, then inflation is the inevitable outcome, and with that will come rising interest rates. And then we have all kinds of redistribution effects around our community. There actually is a lot of inflation going on. We just don't know about it because the common measures of inflation do not take into account what's happening to assets. Well, no one was talking inflation uh, that I can recall in the budget last night. Uh, Gavin Martin, this issue of inflation, and no doubt as a financial advisor, and while you're not giving advice specifically for people listening to our conversation today, a lot of people will be saying, what does a financial advisor think is the best way forward for me and my family finances or my business finances? Uh, Is there any particular direction that you can uh, see yourself taking with your your own clients and that might flow through to listeners to our conversation today? Yeah, good question. Just to address the car issue, I think that's isolated. The cost of secondhand cars going up is really a COVID-related issue that should be relieved if not within the next 18 months, but within two years once supply comes back again. So hopefully that will see, because the, the cost of cars to income levels has actually been reducing over time, whereas property prices have been going up compared to incomes over time. Um, But yeah, I'm quite concerned about the inflationary issue because, uh, or inflation generally, the Reserve Bank keeps on saying that they're not going to increase interest rates or they're not likely to increase until 2024. But there's already, um, the the market dropped in the US uh, yesterday because of the concern about inflation. And there's a report or a um, yeah, a report out that's going to be out uh, shortly, uh, today or tomorrow, that is um, providing the expectation of inflation, consumer ex- expectation of inflation. And just off the back of that, because that would then result in inflation going up and therefore potentially the reserve um, uh, bank in, in the US having to raise interest rates, it's, it's going to be a significant drain on the economy if, if that happens. So I think it's a really important thing to, uh, and it's really the people who are getting into properties right now on the back of low interest rates and the affordability of being able to, to borrow so much, that is the biggest concern for me because the Reserve Bank saying we're not going to raise interest rates, but if inflation sort of takes off, we've got a four four and a half or four and a quarter percent um, GDP or, or growth rate in the next 12 months it's expected. So that's going to put some pressure on uh, prices. So I think it's a real, real concern. The things you can do from a personal perspective is whilst interest rates are low to continue to pay down debt whilst you can. People have done that a lot over COVID and the government's trying to get them to spend money. But for individuals, it's best to continue to pay down that uh, debt. And then also uh, cash is king in difficult times. So making sure that you've got sufficient liquidity, sufficient cash in the bank to pay for your needs over the next you know, 6, 12, 18 months. And that just gives you a buffer to get through those difficult periods in time. Great insights. Let's just touch on here, not much hope of wage increases across the board uh, from what the Treasurer's outlook was last night. Uh, A lot of people, Rodson Hill, have been waiting for a wage rise, uh, hoping that it's coming and not much hope in last night's budget. No, but look, there will almost certainly be movement in certain skills areas because of the fact that immigration is right down. 
And, uh, you know, we can have a long debate about the pros and cons of immigration, but the fact is that while our national borders remain virtually closed and the budget assumes that will be the case until at least the middle of next year, then uh, there will be pressures on wages in some areas. And uh, you can expect that particularly in, in skilled, skilled workers. And Australia has been the most competitive um, country in the world in terms of um, uh, encouraging skilled migrants. Uh, we, we compete against every other country in the world and we're one of the strongest competitors because of the incentives that we offer. That's virtually not happening now. It hasn't happened for a year or so. So there will be some areas in which wages rise and it's possible that that will begin to spill over. The other thing we've got to remember is that with international student numbers down, uh, there's a lot of a lot of um, workers who are just not available for, for casual work. So if perchance things begin to lift, say, in the hospitality and tourism areas, then we could predict that there'll be shortages of labour there as well, which will tend to lead to an increase in wages. So I think there's some some uh, risk for the government in terms of what might happen uh, or to wages, but that's a good thing, of course, for, for wage and income earners. I don't want to miss the opportunity. This is an area of your expertise, Rodson Hill, this idea of higher education. We know that the university sector has taken a huge hit uh, with the economic crisis. Uh, there is possibility that some of those international students will be allowed to come back to Australia uh, with the appropriate uh, quarantine and then move back into our higher education sector. Is this some area of hope you think it could be revived in the near future? Oh, look, I think the government will, uh, mainly because international education has been one of our largest export earners. It's right up there in the top three, and uh, that's virtually stopped. So I, I think the government will do what it can to open, but there's nothing, there's no talk around the budget of doing that. That will come in other conversations. Okay, Gavin Martin, running short of time now, I did want to touch on uh, some more taxation issues. Uh, the government priding itself on the idea that uh, no, no real tax increases, in fact more tax cuts on the way, even stage three tax cuts uh, for higher income earners coming into the near future. Uh, your general perceptions and perhaps a Christian perspective on this idea of what's happening with taxation in Australia right now? Uh, yes, yeah, so in the 2023-24 financial year, there is supposed to be another uh, tax uh, cut as planned previously. I guess it depends on who's in government at the time as to whether that will uh, go ahead. Uh, I, I think on the basis that it's good to uh, reduce taxes and incentivise uh, earning and uh, being productive, as Rod mentioned earlier, it is good to continue those uh, income tax cuts um, but there is going to be, relating to your question about wage increases, there is another pressure on wages that will um, occur from 1st of January. Uh, the uh, government was thinking about whether they would stop or not increase the superannuation guarantee, the 9.5% your employer pays on your behalf. It's scheduled to go to 10% in July and they they didn't do anything about it. So it's going to continue to increase from 10% up to 12%. Uh, but the source of that um, extra 2.5% is, uh, is interesting because potentially what's going to happen is to... to if, if you're earning uh, $100,000 and, and, and um, you're getting 
9500 of superannuation guarantee and in July that's going to go up to uh, $10,000. Who's going to pay for that extra $500? Uh, um, and what generally happens is that your wage won't increase uh, and, and that's the way that uh, the employer will be able to afford uh, that ongoing superannuation obligation. So it might mean that over time we're going to have less money in our pay packets because we won't get the wage increases that we otherwise would have had the superannuation guarantee not continue to go up. Uh, so it'll be a challenge over the next... Um, it, it's a, it's half a percent uh, every year for the next few years, so it's something to factor into your own well, expenditure. Certainly the breaks on wage rises because there's no breaks on uh, the idea of upping that superannuation guarantee to that level of 12%. And some people will be excited about that and others will say, well, if that's going to keep me from getting a wage rise, uh, maybe that money would be better in my pocket right now. That's been part of the debate and that's one of those things to take into consideration. We have run out of time, but I do want to let you know where you can be in connection with our panel today and earlier on the panel we did have Alex Cook the founder of Wealth with Purpose made a wonderful contribution and you'll be able to hear this commentary on a podcast a little later on this afternoon you can be in connection with Alex Cook at wealthwithpurpose.com Rodson Hill Dr Rodson Hill Christian economist has also been our guest over this past 90 minutes He's the pastor at Ignite Life Church on the Gold Coast. Uh, Gold Coast listeners, uh, you might like to take note of that. Uh, Rod also leads Ignite Life Business and is a member of the Council for Business and Theology at the World Evangelical Alliance. You can be in touch with Rod St. Hill through the Ignite Life Church website, ignitelifechurch.com. That's the best way to connect with you, Rod. That, that's fine. That's absolutely great. And Gavin Martin is the founder of Cornerstone Wealth, and uh, we've been uh, connecting with Gavin and uh, using his wonderful wealth of wisdom as a resource when we unpack the budget over many, many years now. Based in Melbourne, senior financial advisor, his business model founded on that fabulous idea, which when you think through the issues where the idea that a person's true worth isn't measured by their net worth, comes down to these finances we're talking about, but rather the individual is of inestimable value. That's a Christian foundation. You can be in connection with Gavin Martin at cornerstonewealth.com.au. cornerstonewealth.com.au. To you, Rodson Hill, and to you, Gavin Martin, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts, your wisdom, and your hearts with us today on 2020. You're very welcome. Thank you, Neil. Great to be with you. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.